Lock Talk Radio. Now we have everybody. We got our Facebook Live folks. We got the Five Radio Network folks. And we're going to buy the script. And here we are in the room. You said sharing the phone. And I just texted your mom, and now she's turning. Okay. Well, yeah, good evening, everybody. Hope uh, hope everybody's. This is, this is our first show of the new year, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah it is. we weren't on last week. Yeah. So hope everybody's uh, New Year's off to a good start. Yeah. Cheers, everybody. I have spicy tonight. I have a pilsner. Something on the lighter side. I have boozy hot chocolate and mashed up. Which with a kitty on the mm-hmm. But yeah, so let's see, where have we been? Uh, watching the Bills play. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, <laughs> thankfully, uh, I heard that. Uh, he he got released from the hospital today. Yep. Back in Buffalo. Back in Buffalo. So, yay for yeah, that. Yeah, Yep. So, good news there. And he's going back to play, or is he? No. Yeah, no he'll he'll be off for the rest of the season. Yeah. At a minimum. So, I'm sure the doctors are going to be uh, very careful. Very careful. Oh, exactly. But, yeah, so kind of, I mean, you know, I'm glad he's doing better, but that one kind of fucked the oxygen out of the room last week, huh? Woo! <laughs> yeah, that, that was scary to watch. Um, but then the Bills won yesterday, and everybody was happy. Yeah. Except for perhaps <laughs> New England, so, but whatever. That's okay. That's okay. New England is perpetually unhappy. <laughs> there is some truth to that. There is some truth <laughs> to that. Uh, anyway, so back to ghosty stuff. Um, yeah, we've just been doing tours, regular tours. We do have um, John Marshall Corden tour this coming weekend on the yeah. 14th. So, yeah, if you have not checked that out yet, that is a lot of fun. Um, so uh, Friday the 13th coming up, we're doing a Churchill Chiller on Friday, Churchill yeah. Chiller's tour on Friday, and we got that, um, the haunt, the ghost of John Marshall and the spirits of Court End in partnership with the John Marshall House on Saturday, which is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. And then the following weekend, we're going to be, uh, of course, doing uh, tours because we are involved in two of them. Uh, first one being the Hanover Paracon um, with VIP dinner, meet and greet on Friday night, and then the actual convention are the Com and um, investigation Saturday night. Yep. I'll be there during the day. Chris will be there for the investigation at night because at nighttime, myself and Lee will be down at the Poe Museum along with two of our other guys. Marsha uh, and, and Travis will be there, and we'll okay. be doing. Um, uh, working with them for the uh, birthday bash, and then also doing the Shabby's chocolate tour that night. Two of them. Yep. The birthday bash is gonna be sick. It's, it's, it's all weekend long, all weekend long, all day long. Yep. <laughs> um, and also, we have started doing trivia on the third Thursdays mm-hmm. of the night of yep. the month. Sorry, at Rich Crow, and this month's theme is of course going to be close. <laughs> Yeah. So 
But yeah, we're kind of getting a little ahead of ourselves. All right. So in the meantime, we went night. From a haunted Mississippi, and I guess I'm starting to do have a Blackberry fire. Okay, John's going to be a birthday batch. Sorry. Woo-hoo. <laughs> All right, so in the deep south state of Mississippi, it has a long and complicated past. Frequently cited for its hardships and horrors, the state has plenty of fuel for a haunting tale. But that's not to say it's all grim and foreboding in this Gulf Coast state. So join us for this evening of paranormal stories of Southern John from the Magnolia State. You might find some inspiration here for your next paranormal road trip. I gotta tell you what, Mississippi was not on my place to visit. After going through and reading some of these stories, I, I guess I mean there's some good stuff. There's some good charms, charms, man. No, no, no. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't mean that as anything bad against Mississippi. It's just there's I mean, there's a lot of places that I want to go, and you know, Mississippi just so maybe, didn't didn't break up there before. Maybe I get you on that Mississippi cruise. Yeah, we could do that. It's not, it needs to stop at Vicksburg. Vicksburg. Most of them do. Okay, fantastic. Vicksburg's usually an end stop or start stop. Good, good, good. Because so, yeah. Transitions. Like, are we talking about Vicksburg? Yeah, <laughs> yes, but Vicksburg, uh, Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. So, and of course Hannibal. Yes. Because Mark Twain. Ah, uh, yes. But. Again, we digress. <laughs> All right, so let's be honest. Most people are paranormal skeptics, at least until they have an experience to prove otherwise. And Stacey Humphreys and her husband, Jimmy, were such people. They laughed when they heard that the antebellum house that they were buying had been haunted by a ghost named Beulah. First, a little background them. Stacey and Jimmy were looking to move from Arizona to Hannibal, Missouri. And while shopping online or excuse me, shopping online for Stockholm, that area, they asked that kept popping up was for an 1800s home in Holly Springs, Mississippi. The ad was a bit frustrating for Stacy and it's persistent. Both Missouri and Mississippi might start with the MISS, but the two spots were hundreds of miles from one another. Yet the ad for the Mississippi home kept showing up, and Stacy finally relented and gave it a look. The home was named Linden Hill, a Greek revival structure built in 1841. It was stunning. It was only listed for $65,000. And digging just a little bit deeper, Stacy found a second home for sale just down the road from Linden Hill that would be perfect for her mother. Well, there was something a little funny about that Linden Hill listing. At the bottom, there was a comment from a woman named Charlotte who had lived at Linden Hill. Beautiful home, but it does have a living ghost, who we all fondly call Beulah. So, who is this Beulah? Beulah Cawthorn and her family lived at Linden Hill in the early 1900s. By the time she was 25, she had begun to suffer from mental problems. In 1919, her family committed her to Mississippi State Insane Asylum in Jackson the same property where the modern University of Mississippi Medical Center is located. She was diagnosed as suffering from circular manic depression, now known as bipolar disorder, where people swing from the highs of euphoria to the lows of depression and sometimes leading into suicidal thoughts. After showing improvement, she returned home several months later. However, within a matter of months, Beulah's parents woke up one night, Beulah standing at the foot of their bed holding a hatchet. They immediately shipped her back off to the mental institution, and she arrived back at the asylum on August 29, 1920, and never saw freedom again. Beulah was evidently, eventually, excuse me, eventually 
transferred to the East Mississippi State Hospital, where she died in 1968, two years before the Food and Drug Administration approved the drug lithium to treat bipolar disorder. Her brother had her body returned to Holly Springs, where she was buried with other family members in the cemetery known as the Little Arlington of the South. After seeing an online comment about this ghost, Casey reached out to Charlotte for more information. Charlotte was well beyond her Linden days and was now living in Horton, Alabama. Charlotte told her the story of Beulah Cawthorn and how the Cawthorn family had sold Linden Hill to the family of Charlotte's grandmother, a place where Charlotte would spend many of her formative years. Charlotte talked of seeing doors open by themselves, chandeliers swaying without wind, and sounds that had no explanation. One night, Charlotte heard what sounded like boots with spurs on them. I got to tell you, that's a very distinct sound. Charlotte always imagined that it was likely a Confederate soldier, one Major General Earl Van Dorn's men who raided and destroyed Union supplies in the town in 1862. When she was about 17, Charlotte's uncle conducted a seance. She and two cousins sat on the floor with him. Whatever they contacted that night was very stirred up. And the hours after the seance, the house was alive, the door slamming and other inexplicable sounds. Months later, Charlotte was sleeping when she found, felt somebody grab her arm. She yelled out, her family rushed in, and they found a handprint on her arm. One of Charlotte's relatives reported having this cover lifted up by a ghost. Another talked of being touched by a ghost. Some were so spooked that they refused to spend the night in the house. Charlotte told Stacy that when her grandmother sold the house in the early 1990s and moved out, the wallpaper literally fell off the wall. I think you need to go. Very much so. I mean, we have a few of those here. Yes, we do. Stacy shared this conversation with her husband, and together they almost died laughing. They talked of the ghosts and did nothing to dissuade them from buying the steel of an offer. For $65,000, they figured they could live with a ghost. Stacy and her mother arrived at Lincoln Hill to paint and get the house ready. They slept in the first night on huge blow-up mattresses. In the middle of the night, her mother said she heard what sounded like eight men banging around in the back of the house. The next night, at about 2.30 in the morning, Stacy heard what sounded like a moan or a cry, leading her to think that a raccoon or some other critter had taken up residence with them. I thought that was unsettling for Stacy. Later, she heard two wrought iron chairs dragging on the tile floor and began to smell capture oil. Smelly raccoons moving furniture? Weird. A little freaked out, she called her daughter the next day and talked over the situation with her. Stacy's daughter wasn't as skeptical of the paranormal, and she recognized that her mother used some sage and blessed the home, figuring that there's no harm in the suggestion and becoming less skeptical with every inexplicable noise. Stacy followed her daughter's suggestion. Still, the activity continued, and still Stacy and her mother persisted in getting the home patched up. After finishing their work, the only thing left to do was to fly back to Arizona to collect her husband and make the drive to their new home. Before leaving for the airport, Stacy decided to write a note to Beulah explaining that she was leaving, but would be back with her husband. Stacy, now a believer, hoped that, she, that her and her husband would be happy to coexist with her in the home. When Stacy returned with her family, all the wedding pictures with her husband were crooked. Not the most comforting welcome back. And the weird experiences continued. The TV would turn on and off by itself. The lights would flicker on and off on their own accord. An electrical inspection says everything's in perfectly working order. 
When Stacy's husband, Jimmy, started uh, had remained skeptical even after Stacy talked to him about her experiences, he finally was shaken up and a little angry himself. He yelled out at the ghost, if you want the lights on, you can pay the damn electric bill. Since then, the activity with the lights came to a halt. That's not to say Lyndon's spirits were done with the new family residing under their roof. Stacy and Jimmy's daughter, Brittany, had her own encounter one night. And this time, it went beyond hearing things and weird electrical phenomena. One night, the little girl, about three feet tall, dressed in white, ran down the hall and brushed against the hat, knocking it to the floor. Brittany was so terrified by what she saw that she left the house. The activity student that soon extended to the family's four-legged companion. Stacy would normally have a guardian while she was in the shower, as the family's dog, Pitbull, named King, would typically wait nearby. However, one night, Stacy heard the water rushing outside the shower, and when she pulled back the curtain to look, the sink faucets were on full blast, and King was down the hall in the kitchen about 25 feet away. Not his normal waiting spot. Furthermore, his eyes were locked on someone or something. No amount of coaxing could draw the dog's attention away from the spot in the kitchen. Stacy quickly finished her shower, shut the water off in the shower and the sink. King's attention finally came back to Stacy, and while the dog seemed fine, she knew she wasn't quite alone with her faithful dog as she had thought. More days, more activity. A deadbolt lock snapped open as Stacy and Jimmy were talking nearby. The sounds of a woman moaning echoed through the home late at night. And chilling as it could be, Stacy started to come to terms with the activity. It didn't seem harmful, and it didn't seem like it was going to be going anywhere. If Stacy and her husband were going to continue living at Linden Hill, they had to accept the paranormal presence in the home, and they came up with an idea. Each month, Stacy and Jimmy started to visit Beulah's grave at Hillcrest Cemetery, leaving a red rose at the woman's final resting place. Even if they could not put Beulah's spirit to rest, maybe they could bring her some semblance of peace. As troubled as she may have been in her life, did Beulah deserve to live most of her life in a mental institution? Was there anything more that could have been done for her? Even if in life in the institution was best for her, Stacy couldn't help but feel the whole story was exceedingly tragic. Leaving a rose for the woman she never met might be a small gesture, but it was a meaningful one all the same. <clears throat> Only to come to terms with the uh, with respect. The, we keep telling y'all it's about respect. Yeah. Generally speaking, I mean, every once in a while, I suppose, just like with well, the living, you might have a bad egg amongst the dead. Mm. But um, yeah, usually show somebody a little kindness, a little bit of respect, goes a long way. So now we are going to go ahead and turn our turn our attention to. Vicksburg, as, as I had mentioned before, and at the heart of Vicksburg, you will find the McRaven Tour Home. It's a beautiful home that can trace its roots back to the late 1700s. The first portion of the house was built in 1797, before Mississippi became a state. Highwayman Andrew Glass built a two-room brick structure with a bedroom above a kitchen, with the removable ladder to prevent an ambush while he slept. Mr. Glass would rob people uh, traveling the Natchez Trace and hide out in McRaven. It's believed that Mr. Glass was the first of several spirits to be attached to the home after his passing. The second portion of McRaven was built in 1836 by Sheriff Stephen Howard, and he, he, enclosed, a, uh, he enclosed the patio, creating 
stairway and adding a bedroom, a dining room, and a two-story covered porch. Built in the Empire period, this portion of the house was simple but had some decorative touches. Sheriff Howard lost his young wife, Mary Elizabeth, after childbirth, and her spirit is thought to be the most active ghost in the house. Some of her personal belongings are still in the home, including her wedding shawl. The third portion of the house was built in the Greek Revival style by John H. Bob in 1849. He was a prominent brick manufacturer and sawmill owner. Mr. Bob built an elegant parlor, master bedroom, men's changing area, flying wing staircase, and a Greek Revival facade, which he later replaced by the Italianette facade with Vicksburg pillars. Bob opened his house as a field hospital during the Civil War and weathered the Vicksburg siege and the Craven. His luck ran out a year later when occupying Union troops murdered him over a brick-throwing incident. <laughs> Mr. Bob's widow sold the home a few years later, and subsequent owners allowed the home to fall into neglect before it was rescued in 1960. After a brief renovation, the McRaven Tour home opened to the public in 1961. Additional renovations over the subsequent decades have resulted in a museum that speaks to multiple periods of history in style and style. It is now used for tours, both haunted and historical, and once a month the home is open for a ghost hunt. Deemed by some as the most haunted house in Mississippi, it's little wonder that people flock to the spooky activities that the McRaven Tour Home offers. Disembodied whispers, ghostly pacing figures, slamming doors, and more inexplicable activity are all common at the historic structure. As noted before, the first owner of the home, Andrew Glass, is believed to be the first of the spirits that reside there. Glass and his wife had not lived at the house long when his luck ran out one night. He was out engaging in his usual business of looking for goods to steal around a French encampment, but he was spotted and promptly peppered with gunfire from French soldiers. While he managed to escape the scene, he was badly wounded. And with French soldiers hot on his heels, Glass fled to his home where he begged his wife to kill him so that he would not be caught alive by the angry soldiers. His wife slit his throat, making Andrew Glass the first of many deaths to occur in the home. Andrew's presence is said to lay heavy on his room. Women are touched by unseen hands and women can feel sudden and irrational bouts of anger. He may also be responsible for borrowing items as objects can go missing only to reappear in a place where it could not have possibly been. Hauntings continue with the Howards. As I said, Mary Elizabeth, well, she died in childbirth at the age of only 15. And this was in August of 1836. And this happened also in the home's middle bedroom. Despite her youth, she was the uncontested lady of the house, and she still embraces that role almost 200 years later. She has been seen by visitors almost in a way of greeting them to the home. She is also considered by most to be responsible for much of the physical activity in the home, with dresser drawers flying open and closed, and the lights in the room where she died flickering without explanation. An unusual physical phenomenon will sometimes occur with her wedding shawl, as well as it will sometimes emit warmth all on its own. That'll be fun. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> During the Civil War era, when the Bobs lived in the home, it would serve as that Confederate field hospital, and the home was frequently shaken by the balloon cannons at nearby battles. And the gravely wounded soldiers cast a heavy weight over the home as well. The most prominent spirit from the Civil War era, though, is that of John Bob himself. 
Ever since Bob was shot by Union soldiers during the occupation of Vicksburg in 1864, his spirit has been seen walking the balcony at McRaven. Other spirits are believed to wander the home and the ground as well, and for the full experience, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> for the full experience, sorry about that, uh, you can visit this piece of haunted history yourself. History tours are available daily, and haunted tours are offered on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings. It is certainly on our paranormal road trip checklist. I'm not holding you for even if you ask. I wasn't going to ask you to. I'm just playing down that role right now. Noted. Can I do that important kid? Okay. <laughs> On that note. All right, we're going to continue on to the National Park, Military Park in Vicksburg. Uh, of course, we can't leave Vicksburg without mentioning this park. It's one of the most renowned military parks in the entire country, and its history is only rivaled by its many hauntings. In the summer of 1863, one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War took place on the lush greenery of the Rolling Hills that now make up Vicksburg National Military Park. The hundreds of monuments and thousands of grave markers that fill the park serve as a constant reminder of the horror of, that the land had once seen. Apparently, those aren't the only reminders. There have been several reports of inexplicable occurrences at the park. One such occurrence involves the, the Pennsylvania Monument. The monument contains five bronze medallions, which feature the faces of the Pennsylvania commanders. According to several reports, the faces appear at times to be crying tears of blood. Strange things have also taken place at the park's Texas Monument. Aside from ores being photographed in the area, there have been times that smoke appeared to be coming from the cannon of the bronze statue. The battlefield is also teeming with uh, supernatural activity, apparitions of soldiers, phantom sounds of battles, including uh, cannons, gunfire and shouted orders, and phantom smells of gunpowder and smoke have been reported. Sounds a bit like Gettysburg. A little bit, yeah. yeah. A lot. Cold yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cold Harbor as well. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to jump over to the city of Natchez, uh, which, um, Natchez, which has one of the most popular restaurants called the King's Tavern. After being constructed in the late 1700s, the building served as a tavern and inn and the city's first post office. Today, both locals and tourists flock there for food, cocktails, and the haunted history, of course. King Stafford is the oldest building in the oldest city on the Mississippi River. It was built in 1760s with the wood from the old flatboats that were used to bring goods down the river uh, to the city and New Orleans before the steamboat days. Since the flatbed, flatboat merchants couldn't float back home against the river's uh, strong current, the last items they sold were their flatboats. They would then travel home, or at least as far as Nashville, by land over the old Natchez Trace, um, a wilderness road that originated from a series of trails used by the southeastern Native American tribes. Undoubtedly, the merchants and the boatmen stopped for a drink or two at King's Tavern before leaving. Later, notorious trace bandits, such as the previously discussed Andrew Glass, would return to King's Tavern and spend the money they had robbed from the travelers. But there were others, like the Harp brothers, 
And like most outlaws, the Harps were motivated by bloodlust rather than financial gain. Entire families fell victims to their bloody rampages through Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky. The elder brother, Micah Harp, was so cold-blooded that he killed his own daughter for crying too loud. Hmm. He sounds like a... He's a, not a winner. <laughs> delightful individual. In 1799, the big Harp uh, was hunted down and killed by a cop near Henderson, Kentucky. His head was mounted and displayed on a pole at Crossroads, which is still called Harp's Head Road to this day. His brother, Wiley Harp, escaped and joined up with the Sam Mason gang. Sam Mason was another notorious trace outlaw. He was known for leaving messages after his crime, often in the blood of his murdered victims, proudly stating, done by Mason of the Woods. In 1803, the Mississippi Territorial Governor William T.C. Claiborne put out a $2,000 reward for Mason. Wiley Harp and James May, another member of the Mason gang, decided to collect it. So they killed Mason's his head, presented it in Greenville. The head was positively identified as Mason's, so the man in the crowd recognized Wiley. Both Wiley and May were arrested on the spot. They were tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. Their heads were mounted and displayed on poles at opposite ends of the trace to deter other outlaws. Records show that Sam Mason and Wiley Harp hit Yazoo and Walnut Hill, which is now Vicksburg, during their prime break. It's very possible they ventured into Natchez to spend their ill-gotten games at King's Tavern. Some believe their ghosts are still at the tavern today. A menacing-looking red-headed spirit wearing a top hat has been spotted time to time, reminding many of the notorious outlaws terrorizing the area centuries ago. The creepy history goes well beyond the spirit of the outlaws. In the 18, excuse me, 1930s, the skeletal remains of three bodies, two men and one woman, were found hidden in the wall behind the fireplace. A jeweled dagger was also found with its remains, which was assumed to be the murder weapon. As for the remains, the two men, or the men was ne- excuse me, the men were never identified. However, the woman was believed to be Madeline, the mistress of the tavern's original owner, Richard King. According to the local legend, Madeline disappeared sometime after Mrs. King found out about the affair. Many believe that Mrs. King killed Madeline and hid the body in the tavern wall. Employees believe that Madeline is responsible for most of the paranormal mischief that takes place at the tavern. Several strange happenings have taken place upstairs, uh, which, of course, used to be the inn. Witnesses have reported seeing a young woman in old-fashioned clothes, her face suddenly appearing in windows or mirrors reflection, as well as feeling a warm spot a few inches above the bed, as if somebody had just been lying in it. Whether you're looking for the tasty meal or a few grand historical haunts, the King's Tavern can, of course, fulfill your appetite for both. <laughs> Pretty, very, very rustic-looking building. It is. So it looks pretty cool. And I'm kind of amazed that it's managed to uh, hold up, survive. survive as long as it has. Considering so, it's like wood. Yeah, it is basically large slabs of wood from those boats. Oh, cool place. I love, I love how we you know, just recycle stuff that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of start kind of sort of starting to get back into that a little bit. Yeah, upcycling as it's called. Yep. Hey, buddy. Hey, Nico. Going back around. So, uh, before this next one, I want to go ahead and give a quick shout-out to uh, a 
friend of mine, uh, Ryan Wells, he uh, runs a page called Graveyard Geeks. And, uh, it's a fun page to it, follow. It, it is a fun page to follow. They, he's done a lot of traveling and, well, as part of said, travel feed visits cemeteries all over the place. But he uh, reached out when he saw me post this haunted Mississippi because the cover photo that I had on it was about this next location. Well, it's not necessarily a cemetery. It certainly is um, a very cool um, historic feature down there uh, in Mississippi. It's a place called the Windsor Ruins. And it was the, uh, these ruins are uh, uh, what is left of the largest antebellum Greek revival mansion in Mississippi. And what, uh, uh, what are now the Windsor Ruins, which are, uh, sorry. Words are hard. I'm deviating from my script and regretting it. <laughs> what are now the Windsor Ruins was once the cornerstone of the 2,600-acre Windsor Plantation built by Smith Coffee Daniel II. The 17,000-square-foot home, 17,000-square-foot home, we'll the, get there. Yeah, <laughs> was constructed between 1859 and 1861 and prominently featured 29 40-foot Corinthian columns. 23 of which frame the ruins that linger today. The columns were the best that money could buy. The fluted columns were crowned with half-ton ornate iron Corinthian capitals and joined with ornamental iron balustrades. The column capitals, balustrades, and cast iron stairways were manufactured in St. Louis and shipped down the Mississippi to the nearby port of Bruinsburg. The skilled labor, artisans, Carpenters, masons, and painters for the home came from as far as the northeastern U.S. and Europe. The hard labor was completed by Daniel's slaves. And they were surprised. That was that was that time period. As long as it was, it was yep. that's history. Yep. Amongst the other features that the opulent residents boasted were wide verandas, interior bathrooms, a schoolroom, a doctor's office, a study, a library, ebony-framed mirrors, and over 20 rooms with their own fireplaces made of Georgia and Tennessee marble. Situated on top of the home was a large observatory overlooking the Mississippi. It was a showcase of the immense wealth that was built on the back of slaves in an era when cotton was king. When the home was finished in 1861, Daniel moved in at the age of 32. Yeah, only 32 years old. Multimillionaire overseeing an empire of more than 20,000 acres of land in Mississippi and Louisiana and no fewer than 300 slaves. Unfortunately for he and his family, Daniel wouldn't get to enjoy it very much. On April 28th of 1861, mere weeks after completion of Windsor, the completion of Windsor, Daniel died of what was assumed to be a heart attack. And things were about to get much worse for the South as the Civil War ramped up in the months ahead. Many Southern homes and plantations were destroyed during the war, but Windsor was fortunate. It survived mostly unscathed, but it didn't remain untouched. During the early years of the war, Windsor's observatory was frequented by Confederates as they watched Union troop movements up and down the Mississippi and surrounding areas. As it turns out, Union troops were also watching the Confederates. Just before the federal campaign on Vicksburg began, Catherine Daniel, Smith Coffee Daniel's widow, was hosting one of the parties that would become commonplace at Windsor over the next 30 years. Several neighbors and even a few Confederate officers attended the party. After everyone had arrived for the party, a few more guests arrived unannounced. 
Several Union soldiers marched in with the idea of capturing Confederates on their minds. As the soldiers entered the parlor, they lay their eyes on quite a party with singing, laughing, and general revelry. Amongst the partygoers were three Confederates dressed in their gray uniforms. One of the Union soldiers approached the Confederate in charge, touched him on the shoulder, shoulder and inquired, are you a Confederate officer? He promptly replied, yes, I am. At this moment, the singing stopped and the ladies protested the intrusion. A protest that fell on deaf ears. The ladies attempted to fend off the Union soldiers, but the arrest proceeded and the Confederates were marched down to the riverfront and taken by boat to prison in Vicksburg. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about your party crashing. Yeah. Anyway. Soon after the Vicksburg campaign began and Ulysses S. Grant with 10,000 Union troops landed at the port of Greensburg just west of Windsor. They proceeded to climb the hill to take control of the mansion. Windsor would serve as a staging ground for the imminent battle of Port Gibbons, um, yeah, Gibson, uh, Bruinsburg on May 1st, 1863 and subsequent operations, namely as an observation station and field hospital. The hospital would go on to treat over 400 soldiers on the ground and see more than 30 dead and buried as the Daniel family were sequestered to the third floor of their own home. At least one other Civil War casualty fell on the ground. During the aftermath of the battle of Port Gibson, and while the mansion was still under occupation of Union soldiers, a Union soldier was shot and killed on the front doorway of the home. Once General Grant heard of this, following the, commotion, uh, following the common retaliatory practice of the war, he sent troops to burn the mansion to the ground. Somehow, Catherine talked the soldiers out of burning her home. Instead, they burned the barn to the ground. Yeah. The Civil War came to a close, and even though Daniels had lost a staggering amount of wealth, they weren't exactly in the poorhouse. During Reconstruction, they leased out a substantial amount of their land holdings for steady income and maintained a high standard of living. The Daniels remained at Windsor for over the, over the next 25 years or so and hosted social gatherings regularly. The gathering on February 17, 1890, though, proved to be the final party the Daniels would ever host at Windsor. At about 10.30 a.m., a group went up to the observatory to get a good view of the river and Louisiana. Coming down, a young man threw his cigarette into some trash. <clears throat> the blaze took nearly everything from Windsor, including all the personal property, drawings, and photographs of the home. All that remained were the columns, full straws, cast iron stairways, and some pieces of bone china. A local paper reported the aftermath. The palatial dwelling on Windsor Plantation near Bethel Church in the southwestern part of the county burned to the ground last Monday. The fire was discovered about noon, but it could not be checked, and in a few hours, the splendid country site was in ruins. Most of the contents were also destroyed. These included not only a great deal of elegant furniture, but many costly heirlooms and much other household property of value, such as jewelry, silver plate, a large library, etc. With her home of three decades destroyed, Catherine Daniel and her family moved to a nearby plantation fittingly called Retreat, where she lived 13 years before dying at the age of 73. The Windsor property remained with the family until 1974 when Smith Coffee Daniel's descendant donated the rooms to the state of Mississippi for historic preservation. For more than 100 years, the appearance of the mansion was a bit of a mystery. There were no surviving photos or sketches of the place, or so people thought. In the early 1990s, everything changed. The personal diaries and papers of a former Union captain, 
Henry Otis Dwight of the 20th Ohio were discovered and examined at Ohio State University. Amongst the documents to delight, to the delight of researchers was a sketch of Windsor Plantation. On May 1st, 1863, following the Battle of Port Gibson, Captain Dwight had sat down to sketch the mansion. It remains the only known first-hand account or representation of the mansion in existence. Despite having little remaining documentation about the once magnificent mansion, what is known is that the war, the murder, and the fire that ravaged the property left plenty of energy and lore behind to fuel haunting tales for generations since. According to local lore, the property is haunted by the ghost of a Union soldier who was killed at the doorway. But he still lingers there to this day. And Smith Coffey Daniel II is also said to haunt the grounds of his one-time home as well. According to one report, a visitor saw a man in period clothing, assumed it was a reenactor, and approached to ask some questions about Windsor. However, as he got close, the reenactor turned towards the man, smiled, and faded away. According to visitor reports, his faded image has been seen walking up the old iron staircase that no longer exists. Others have reported hearing laughter and music coming from this once magnificent mansion as if there is still an elegant soiree going on. Aside from the Corinthian columns that remain, the only other evidence of the Daniel family's presence is that of the family cemetery that sits just a short distance from the ruins. The cemetery contains 45 known markers, including that of Smith Coffee Daniel II. Like the ruins, the cemetery is said to be haunted, with the spectral stories surrounding the historic graveyard mainly tell of mysterious lights that seem to float above, around the graves at nightfall. Groups of paranormal investigators have been to the ground and returned with the same types of experiences. One group of investigators caught an extremely creepy EVP one night, a ghost that seems to have a guilty conscience, spoke the phrase, it's all my fault, quite clearly into one of the team's recording devices. Other visitors have also said that they have been poked by unseen hands and heard disembodied voices. So, so is that all my fault, the brick or the cigarette? I don't know. <laughs> Good question. There's certainly plenty of fault to go around there over the generations. Okay. This would be good. Yeah. All right, so this is going to be interesting because I have a kitty falling asleep right here. All right, so now we're going to go over to Ellisville, a small town in central Mississippi, and here we find the Dustin Home. Decent, excuse me, home. It was built in 1845 as the oldest home in Jones County. When the Civil War broke out, Jones County was made up mostly of poor farmers who owned a few slaves. Many of these men, including Newton Knight, felt that the war wasn't their fight. Following the fall of Vicksburg, Knight and several others deserted their post to return home to Jones County. Considered traitors, they formed a renegade army that hid out in nearby swamps. Eventually, Major McLemore uh, was sent out to round them up. Major McLemore had set up headquarters in the decent home, and it was his lunch, but unfortunately short-lived. On one rainy night in October of 1863, McLemore was shot as he stood by the fireplace in the bedroom. Newton Knight, the leader of the Confederate deserters, was the one who pulled the trigger. After being shot, McLemore, God, that's an awful name. <laughs> McLemore. McLemore. <laughs> McLemore. Bled to death on the floor of the bedroom, leaving behind a blood stain that soaked through the floorboards to the slab below. 
In recent years, the bloodstain was scrubbed and scrubbed, but returned time and time again, especially when it rained. Since then, the home has been a hot spot for paranormal activity and strange happenings. According to the paranormal investigators, at least five spirits haunt this home, many of whom have a penchant for violence. There have been a couple of instances where investigators were physically attacked. Phantom voices, moving objects, and spirits in period clothing have all been experienced inside this home, even during tours and special events. During a reenactment at the home, a volunteer was wearing a dress that belonged to Mrs. Deason. As she walked around the home, she heard a disembodied voice say, get out of my dress. Hmm. I'd be getting out of that dress for this though. Oh, for sure. Mm. <laughs> no questions asked there. Another frightening incident took place when a group of students from Jones County Junior College visited the home. While recording, the students captured a voice of a hysterical woman saying, buddy, there's someone in the attic. And the anniversary of uh, the major's death is also going to bring some unusual happenings. It said that each year on October 5th, the door to the home suddenly bursts open only to reveal an empty porch. <laughs> Despite the frightful experiences, the home remains a beautiful place to visit, if you dare. Just don't try on the dresses. <laughs> now you've got the boy. I just want to be there on the day the door opens. Watch your key. <laughs> and your phone is down there. Down there. Okay, cool. Dude, there's not much left that we don't get with TV. Yeah. So now we're going to go ahead. We're going to pop into the small town of Waynesboro. No. Yes, Waynesboro. Mississippi, where we haven't put many jumps There's several Waynesboro out there. Lots of Waynesboro out there. So this is Waynesboro, Mississippi. And this is where local lore has been passed down from generation to generation. One of the most popular stories is centered around a haunted road with dark past that has come to be known as Devil Worshipper Road. Ah. It's really called Waynesboro Shibuda Road, but, well, this show is meant to be focused on the creepy stuff. So Devil Worshipper Road it is. There are numerous stories of supernatural happenings associated with this long stretch of road, and while some believe the haunting of this road is the direct result of sacrifices made by a satanic cult, others think it has to do with a local devil-worshipping farmer who sold his soul to the devil and was in turn transformed into a demonic creature known as Goatman. Nice. Movie. Yeah. Oh, I'm so down. Yeah. <laughs> the demonic creature is said to be about seven feet tall with glowing eyes and a pitchfork in hand. Those that have been brave enough to drive down Devil Worshipper Road say that their cars suddenly shut down, leaving them stranded. A feeling of being watched, the appearance of shadowy figures, and even being taunted by spirits that shook their cars, leaving handprints behind. Others say that they have seen the goat man himself claiming the frightening creature stood in front of their stalled vehicle while intently staring at them. This figure with the glowing eyes is said, uh, has, uh, has not yet laid hooves on anyone, but his appearance has uh, laid, been laid deep into the minds of any who have actually crossed his path. He does sound like a bit of office in um, Washington, Oregon. Yeah. 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 Some-foot-tall goat man with glowing eyes and a pitchfork. Oh, for sure. Especially as a farmer. He didn't like farmers. <laughs> I, I have a drink with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Go ahead. Keep going. Oh, man. I got a sleepy voice. All right. So, next we have uh, a couple of little vignette-type stories for you. Really short, uh, brief cemetery tales, if you will. Oh. Uh, 
Kosciuszko. Uh, I don't know. There's a place oh. that has what they call city cemetery. Sorry. That happened at that place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> C O S or K O S C I U S K O. Has a place called City Cemetery. And it was here that Laura Kelly was laid to rest after her death in the late 1800s. Laura's husband was so distraught at her loss that he commissioned a statue to be built in her memory. Sparing no expense, Mr. Kelly hired a world-renowned sculptor and even sent the sculptor some of his wife's clothes so that the statue would be as realistic as possible. The grieving husband then had a third story added to his home so he could view the statue of his beloved wife from, from the upper floors. Several visitors to this cemetery have claimed that at the time, the statue of Laura Kelly appeared, appears to be weeping. Oh, words are not my friend right now. Yes, I'm dead. Mercury communication part. Sure, we're going to go with that. So now we are going to uh, Madison County, where we will find the Chapel of the Cross Cemetery. Here, the grave of Henry Gray Vick has quite an interesting story. Just days before Henry was to marry Helen Johnstone, he was killed in a duel. Losing, losing the love of her life so suddenly, Helen was heartbroken, so much so that she reportedly wore her wedding dress to Henry's funeral. There have been numerous reports that Helen's ghost, still wearing her wedding dress, visits Henry's grave quite frequently. Oftentimes sitting in the, uh, on the bench, shown in the background, um, I, I, Often I'm sitting on a bench close by the grave site today. Okay. Do I need to pick up her? I, I got this. You got, I got this? this. I'm going to push through. <laughs> In the town of Gosher, we have Garden of Hope Cemetery. Multiple spirits are thought to linger in the cemetery, including a very dramatic one that has been named Bloody Sarah. Sarah likes to dart out of the cemetery into the road, leaving unfortunate drivers terrified that they had just run someone over. According to several reports, Bloody Sarah can be heard insanely laughing throughout the entire ordeal. Of course, no such person is ever found, and it's only a matter of time until Bloody Sarah surprises her next victim. Then there is the much more friendly entity named Cheryl Ann, who has been seen by numerous people. Unfortunately, Cheryl Ann is accompanied by her father, Hal, who supposedly killed the young woman, her siblings, and her mother. Then there's the cryptomaniac ghost who climbs from his grave, steals flowers and wreaths from other grave sites, and returns to his grave with the loot in tow. Now, backtracking just a shade, a side note about the heinous Hal who murdered his family. He was a shipyard worker working near Gauter while his family lived in New Orleans. The family made plans to meet at Gauter Motel on a Friday evening, but once the family turned in for the night, Hale did the unthinkable. He used an axe to murder his wife, the five children, and several other motel guests. After completing his heinous act, Hale wandered aimlessly down the highway, at which point he was run over and killed. To this day, witnesses say that Hale can also be seen wandering down that highway.
Saxon constructed the home of native pine and cypress and topped it with a slate roof punctured by three dormers and two chimneys, one at each end. Over the years, the magnificent estate had been home to many different people, generating fascinating stories about the property. The first owners, the Grahams, were slave traders with a reputation for extreme cruelty to their slaves that supposedly resulted in the bloodstains on the third-story floor. The Grahams occupied the home for a time. The home subsequently sat empty for several years, prompting locals to believe that it was haunted. Between 1873 and 1902, the home then uh, was known as Bellevue. It changed hands at least nine times. Some owners resided on the estate, though others did not, and at one time it served as a girls' school. The Longfellow House's history became quite muddled, perhaps opening the door to many of the legends surrounding it. In 1902, W.A. Pollock purchased the house. His family lived there until 1938, a a longer tenure than any other family. Many members of the Pollock family then sold the house to Mayor Frank Canty, who resold it just three years later to the Ingalls Shipping Corporation. Ingalls owned the estate for several decades and transformed it from private residence to an exclusive club and resort that featured all the amenities of a luxurious beachfront resort, cottages, hotel rooms, dining rooms, a lounge, a swimming pool, and, of course, a golf course. After some success, the patronage of the resort declined, and the Longfellow House fell into disrepair. A real estate developer eventually purchased the estate, divided the land to sell as individual lots, and then sold the house to Diane and Richard Scuggs, who then spent countless hours researching the history of the home and restoring it to its former grandeur, and then donated it to the University of Mississippi Foundation. The home was damaged by Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and was purchased the following year by Drs. Tracy and Randy Roth, who lost their own historic home in that storm. The Roths undertook the repairs and once the house again survived as a private residence. Numerous legends have regarded, regarding the house have arisen. Perhaps the best known is the one that gave the home its current name. Poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow supposedly was visiting the estate when he was inspired by Pascola Bay and penned the building of a ship. Despite the authority which uh, locals often tell this story, it's simply a legend. The poem describes, uh, in question describes the process of a ship's construction, and it does mention Pasabola. Locals likely draw a connection to this reference and the town's shipbuilding tradition and concluded the poet must have witnessed shipbuilding in the bag. However, closer reading of the poem reveals that Pasabola is one of the country's largest exporters of timber at the time. It was simply a source for the lumber used to build the ship, brought from regions far away from Pasabola's sunny bay. Longfellow apparently never traveled south of Virginia, so the idea that he visited this home is simply a myth. The haunting of Longfellow House has been a popular topic of conversation amongst the natives for years. Legend has it that a slave who worked in the home was beaten nearly to death and sent to the woods to die. The slave that is believed to haunt the Longfellow House can often be heard moving around the upstairs area of the home. It appears the spirit is still angry and has reportedly gotten violent on several occasions pushing down one person and slapping another. While not open to the public, it remains a beautiful home to set your eyes on should you ever have the chance. All right, so we're gonna go ahead, we're gonna pop back over to Natchez for a moment, where we'll stop at the Eola, Eola 
Eola Hotel. E-O-L-A? Eola? Eola. Eola Hotel, which opened back in 1927 uh, by Mr. Isidore Levy. The hotel quickly garnered a reputation for being the grandest hotel in town. The hotel temporarily closed in 1974, but was restored and reopened in 1978. And upon reopening, it became clear that one guest had just simply never left, the ghost of Mr. Levy himself. The former owner has been cited on several occasions by employees at the hotel. In one instance, an elderly gentleman approached the bar and ordered a drink. After mixing the drink, the bartender turned around to give it to the man, however, quickly gone. Later that evening, the bartender saw a picture of Mr. Levy in the hotel's lobby and claimed that that was the customer who ordered the drink. Mr. Levy's daughter, Eola, has also been seen in hotel, especially the dining area. All right. And then we're going to go ahead and pop back over to uh, the very haunted city of Vicksburg. And this time we will visit the Cedar Grove Mansion. Constructed in the 1840s, it was built by jeweler, banker, and landowner John Alexander Klein for his bride, Elizabeth. During construction, John and Elizabeth traveled to Europe for two years to furnish their home. Finishing in 1852, John and Elizabeth moved in and proceeded to have 10 children over the following years. They added on to the house a couple of times, and all seemed to be well, at least until the siege of Vicksburg in 1853. The home suffered some cannon fire damage just by a few scars that you can still see today. Excuse that was Nico. That was Nico dragging his toy. Anyway, home suffered some cannon fire damage but survived with a few scars that you can still see to this day. Cedar Grove survived possibly because Elizabeth Klein was a cousin to William T. Sherman, who used the grounds as a field camp and later a military hospital. Although John Klein first financial setback from the war, he built four more mansions in the neighborhood for his children. Three of these mansions still survive. The area makes up the historic garden district with shared gardens from the mansions down the Mississippi River. John Klein passes away in 1884 and Elizabeth in 1909. The Kleins keep the family house in the family until 1919. The home changes hands a couple of times, and then in 1960, the Vicksburg Theater Guild saved the mansion from demolition. They offer tours of the home and use the ballroom for performances. In 1981, the house is sold again and becomes a resort hotel and remained open as a small hotel until 2020. The mansion reopened to the public late last year as the inn at Cedar Grove. Well, we must wait to see if the freshly renovated hotel retains any spirits as days gone by. During its days as a theater and as its first iteration as a hotel, witnesses encountered some of the previous residents who apparently never left. Visitors have reported seeing apparitions of Mr. and Mrs. Klein in the home and hearing couples children roam about the halls and smelling the smoky tobacco from Mr. Klein's pipe. On a more frightful note, the echoes of a suicide seem to reverberate through the building on some nights. A daughter in one of the families that lived in Cedar Grove after the Kleins shot herself in the mansion's grand ballroom. Occasionally, the sounds of a gunshot, screaming, and music can be heard in the dead of the night, much to the concern of the workers who have been subjected to these sounds time and again. Finally, there seems to be the spirit of someone who cannot make a subtle entrance. 
One morning, a chef arrived to work and was promptly confronted with an accusation that he had left the front door wide open when he departed on the previous night. The chef was offended by this accusation and he suggested to view the security footage from the night before. Sure enough, the motion-activated cameras detected motion in the middle of the night. Around 1 a.m., the front door blasted open, then closed, opened again, closed about halfway, opened again, and finally closed most of the way. A maintenance guy said that some wind must have blown it open and caused all of that, but there was a big problem with that theory. The mansion was decorated for the holidays, and flowing garlands were draped throughout the room. Despite the violent motions of the door, the garlands never stirred. There was not a breath of air coming in through that swinging door. Sounds like a hotel we need to go stay at. Absolutely. The Inn at Cedar Grove Mansion. And that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> was our last story for this evening. Sorry for the cat fishing. <laughs> Apparently, it's her cat's playing. <laughs> so, but yeah, thank you all for tuning in. Hope that uh, you enjoyed this evening's show. And a uh, reminder, we will be back again this very next week. So next we'll be week, doing Witches Part 2. Yep, Witches okay. Part 2. We got our second Witches episode. If you missed the first one, you can catch that on, um, go ahead, and you can find it in the video archive on our Facebook page. And, of course, you can also find it, I think I've uploaded that one to YouTube now. So, um, yeah, we got previous. Yeah. Yep. I'm almost almost caught up on uh, getting everything uploaded to YouTube. I might actually, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe go ahead and get one or two more uploaded this evening after we get off uh, get offline here. But uh, yeah, hope that you'll come back and join us uh, join us in a week's time to chat again. And then um, actually two weeks after that, or three weeks from today, we will have Haunted Colorado. Ooh. So, yeah. I did promise I was going to start making my way through steaks. So. We're, and we're making a pretty good debt now. I mean, it's... Um, I'm having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I went down Colorado's rabbit hole and then ended up in a whole different rabbit hole for a whole new strip. Yes. So, so you know. <laughs> our, uh, our February schedule is still pending, but um, we probably will have that... Uh, uh, well, I'm sure we'll have it cleared up by the time we do Haunted Colorado, but we might have a clearer picture even next week. So we shall see. Yeah, I think I've got it written out somewhere. I've got at least two of them figured out. But in the meantime, if you can, if you're from the area, come on out and join us on Friday the 13th. Yep. Come on out on Saturday and join us at the John Marshall House. And... Thursday night. Yeah. Thursday night. And then uh, oh, it'll, be, it'll be after our next show, but still, um, go ahead, get it on your calendar. Uh, Post birthday bash at the Poe Museum on Saturday and Sunday, the what is it, 22nd, 20, yeah, uh, 20, 21st, and 22nd. And then on the 23rd is the Poe Museum Centennial Celebration at the Dominion Energy Center. You can get information on all that Poe Museum stuff at poemuseum.org. So go ahead and check them out and uh, hope that we can see you there. And also that same day on the 21st, uh, if you want to mix things up and do poem museum stuff and do some other spooky stuff, you can come and catch us up at Hanover Tavern for the uh, second annual Hanover Tavern Paracon. Yep. So we got a lot going on. Yes, we do. So with that, we will go ahead. We will wrap it up for this evening. I think this covers it. Yes. All right. Again, thanks you all for watching, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all again soon. Bye, Good night. Guys.